You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What can be said about Adelaide Stevenson is he was a Democrat who won in a Republican district, a Midwesterner in a party dominated by Southerners, and a Silverite who worked under a hard-money president. And he's probably best known by moderates, not for anything he did in his lifetime, but for who his grandson was. In February 1900, the Chicago American ran a photograph of former Vice President Adlai Stevenson holding his new grandson, Adlai Ewing Stevenson II. That year, the grandfather was again nominated to run for vice president. A half century later, the grandson would run twice as the Democratic nominee for president. Adlai Stevenson, interestingly enough, had a reputation as somebody who was, uh, well, the negative way to say it would be an egghead, um, an intellectual, and, and not a person who would sit there and tell stories and slap backs. And he was running against Eisenhower, who didn't appear to be his match, you know, intellectually, and a vote for Stevenson in the 50s and, and going into the 60s when he was talked about in 1960 was, um, you know, akin to kind of intellectual purity. You know, well, you're voting for a famous general, I'm voting for the guy that has the smarts, that kind of thing. I mean, reality is Eisenhower is a pretty smart guy. But the interesting thing is that when you look at his grandfather, Adelaide Stevenson, it was almost everything that Stevenson, the type that Stevenson played against. You know, Adelaide Stevenson was a politician and a storyteller. And although I don't have any particular evidence of it, probably a backslapper. There is a joke that people told that when Buchanan was president, his vice president was John Breckinridge, and the only thing Buchanan asked Breckinridge was how he should craft his Thanksgiving message. I don't know whether that's true or not. Stevenson would tell people, he doesn't even ask me about his Thanksgiving message. I think one of the best ways to get to know Adelaide E. Stevenson, who was vice president of the United States in the 1890s, during Grover Cleveland's second non-consecutive term, is to relate some of the stories from his memoir. We could talk about how Stevenson met Abraham Lincoln. We could talk about how he was a silver money enthusiast serving under a president with the opposite view. We could talk about his role in enforcing party discipline. We, could, we, will, we will talk about all those things. But first, a few stories. <music> Thank you. 
I'm reminded of an incident that occurred in a state far to the north, while the, quote, main law was in operation. The main law related to the prohibition of alcoholic beverages. A dilapidated-looking pedestrian with a pack on his back early one afternoon of a hot July day pulled up in front of the post office in a small village in the interior of Maine, humbly addressing a citizen who was just coming out with his cop of the weekly tribute in hand. He inquired, "Where can I get a drink?" "The Maine law is in force," was the reply, "and it is impossible for you to get a drink in the state." The heart of the wafer sank within him. Would you let a man die right here on your streets for lack of drink? The better angel of the citizen touched thereat. He replied, "My friend, I am very sorry for you, but no liquor is ever served here, except by the apothecary, and then only as medicine." Upon further inquiry, the important fact that was disclosed was that the shop of the apothecary was three quarters of a mile away, on the left-hand side of the road. With something of hope, the pedestrian immediately gathered up his pack and, through the dust and heat at length, reached the designated place. Sinking apparently exhausted upon the doorstep, he feebly requested the man behind the counter to let him have something to drink. The immediate reply of the apothecary was that the main law was in force, and no spirituous liquors could be sold except upon the prescription of a physician. After earnest inquiry, it was ascertained that the nearest doctor's office was one mile away, and the man with the pack again betook himself to the weary highway. Returning an hour later, in tone more pitiful than before, he begged the apothecary, as he hoped for mercy himself, to let him have a drink. Upon inquiry as to whether he had procured the required certificate, he said, "No, the doctor wouldn't give me any." The assurance of the apothecary. That the case appeared hopeless only added to the distress of the poor man, whose sands seemed now indeed to be running low. I like how Adelaide Stevenson, relating the story, is using the metaphor of a hourglass sands running low. Stirred to the deep by agony of his visitor, the apothecary at length said, "My friend." I would be glad to help you, but it is impossible for me to let you have a drink of spirituous liquor, unless you have a doctor's certificate or have been snake bit. At the last mentioned suggestion, the face of the man of repeated disappointments measurably brightened, and he eagerly inquired where he could find a snake. The now sympathetic man of bottles told him to follow the main road three miles to the forks, then a few hundred yards to the west, and he would find a small grove of decayed trees, where there still lingered a few snakes. And by the exercise of a reasonable degree of diligence, he might manage to get bit, and thereby lay the foundation for the desired relief. With bundle again in place, and evincing a buoyancy of manner to which he had been a stranger for many hours. The traveler resumed the quest. Hours later, when the shadows had lengthened and the fireflies were glistening in the distance, with a look so piteous in purport, as if he had been loosed out of hell to speak of horrors, he re-entered the apothecary's shop, threw down his bundle, and in tones suggestive of agony of lost souls, again begged for a drink. Did you get snake bit? Was the feeling of inquiry of the man at the helm. No, 
Every snake I met had engagements six months ahead for all the bites he could furnish. One of the candidates on the ticket with Mr. Samuel Tilden when he was elected governor of New York was the late William Dorshamer. Judge Maynard told me that he was present in the library of Mr. Tilden when Dorshamer called immediately after the full election returns had been received. Tilden's popularity at the time was very great, growing out of his successful prosecution of the noted canal ring, and resulted in the triumph of the ticket, of which he was the head. Mr. Dorshamer, the lieutenant governor-elect of New York State, was greatly delighted that his own majority exceeded that of the more distinguished candidate for the chief executive office. During the conversation, Dorshamer remarked to Tilden, Your majority is 50,000, while mine is 51,500. Yes, yes, quickly remarked Tilden. You got the 1,500. I gave you the 50,000. Adelaide E. Stevenson, born in 1835 in Christian County, Kentucky. When he was 16, Frost killed the family's industry, its tobacco crop. That was it for Kentucky for the family, and they moved north. His father found a place in Bloomington, Illinois, and he operated a sawmill. In moving the family to what now is maybe a six-hour drive, 300 miles away, but then a world away, Stevenson moved from a state that allowed slavery to a free state. As Adelaide Stevenson relates in his memoir, following the earliest westward trail, Ireland County, North Carolina, crossed the Blue Ridge Mountains for a great distance along the banks of the romantic French broad. My grandfather, Scotch-Irish Presbyterians, James Stevenson and Adelaide Ewing, with their immediate families and others of their kindred, had in the early days of this century, after long and perilous journey, finally reached the famous spring. Nearby, their tents were pitched, and in time, permanent homes established in the then wilderness of southwestern Kentucky. The first public building constructed was of locks with punch and floor and set apart to the double purpose of schoolhouse and church for the use of all denominations. Its site was near the spot where the speaker's stand was now erected for the barbecue, which I have mentioned. From the pulpit of this rude building, the early senators had more than once listened spellbound to the eloquence of Peter Cartwright, Henry Bascom, Nathan Rice, Finnis Ewing, and Alexander Campbell. In this old church, the time-honored custom was for some, one of its officers, to line out the hymn two lines at a time, and then lead the singing in which the congregation joined. Among my earliest recollections is that my uncle, Squire Mackenzie, one of the best of men, standing immediately in front of the pulpit and faithfully discharging this important duty after the hymn had been read in full by the minister. I distinctly recall the solemn tones in which, upon communion occasions, he lined out in measured and mellow cadence, the 
good old hymns. ways of the old field school and the methods of the old-time teachers now belong to the past. Once experienced, however, they have an abiding place in the memory. The master, upon his accustomed perch near the spacious fireplace, with his ever-present symbol of authority, the rod, upon which even Solomon would have considered fully up to the orthodox standard in alarming proximity. The boys, making their manners by scrapping the right foot upon the floor, and bowing low as they entered the schoolroom, the girls, upon like occasion, equally faithful in the practice of bewitching little curtsy, which only added to their charms, the studying out loud, the hum of the schoolroom being thereby easily heard a mile or two away, the timid approach to the dreaded master with the humble request that he would mend a pen, parse a verb, or do a sum. An hour, called recess, was given for the dinner from the baskets brought from home, and then the glorious old games, marble, town ball, and bullpen, to the heart's content. At the sound of the anonymous command books, each scholar promptly resumed his seat, the merry shout of the playground at once giving way to the serious business of saying lessons. In those good old days, the slightest act of omission or commission upon the part of the pupil was confronted with a terrible condition, instead of a harmless theory. In very truth, the uncomfortable effect of the punishment unfailingly administered, doing his duty to your parents, as the petty schoolroom tyrant was wont to observe, was in small degree lessened by the comforting assurance that the victim would thank him for it the longest day he lived. Then to crown all came the debating society, with the schoolmaster presiding and the entire neighborhood, sweethearts and all, in attendance, and the boys for the first time testing their oratorical powers. Vigilant preparations having been made for the discussion of such momentous questions as which deserves the most credit, Columbus for discovering America or Washington for defending it? Or which brings the greatest happiness to mankind, pursuit or possession? From the memoir of Annalise Stevenson. Adelaide worked in the mill, and he taught school, earning money to put himself through college. And when he earned enough, he went back to school in Kentucky. He attended Center College in Danville, Kentucky. He became a lawyer. And in the time that Adelaide Stevenson is becoming a lawyer, it's quite a time to be a lawyer in Illinois. Quite a few famous people in that state. Here's what Stevenson writes. I distinctly recall the first time I saw Mr. Lincoln in September 1852. Two lawyers from Springfield, somewhat travel-stained with their 60 miles journey, alighted from the stagecoach in front of the old tavern in Bloomington. The taller and younger of the two was Abraham Lincoln. The other, his personal friend and former preceptor, John T. Stewart. That evening, it was my good fortune to hear Mr. Lincoln address a political meeting at the old courthouse. 
in advocacy of the election of General Winfield Scott to the presidency. The speech was one of great ability, and but little that was favorable of the military record of General Pierce remained when the speech was concluded. Winfield Scott was running against Franklin Pierce. The Whigs made fun of his military career. The Mexican War was then of recent occurrence, its startling events fresh in the memory of all, and its heroes still the hero of the hour. The more than half-century that has passed has not wholly dispelled my recollection of Mr. Lincoln's eloquent tribute to the hero of Lundy's Lane and his humorous description of the military career of General Franklin Pierce. Yeah, it was uh, often made fun of Pierce that um, he didn't do much more than falling off his horse. The incident, now to be related, occurred at the Old National Hotel in Bloomington, Illinois in September 1854. Stephen Douglas had been advertised to speak, and a large audience was in attendance. It was his first appearance there since the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Bill. The writer, then a student at Wesleyan University with his classmate James E. Ewing and others, had called upon Mr. Douglas at his hotel. While there, the Honorable Jesse Fell, prominent citizen of Bloomington, and the close friend of Mr. Lincoln also called upon Mr. Douglas, and after some conversation with him, said in substance that insomuch as there was profound interest in this great question then pending, and people were anxious to hear both sides, he thought it would be well to have a joint discussion between Judge Douglas and Mr. Lincoln. To which proposition, Mr. Douglas at once demanded, What party does Mr. Lincoln represent? The answer of Mr. Fell was, The Whig Party, of course. Declining the proposition with much feeling, Mr. Douglas said, When I came home from Washington, I was assailed in the northern part of the state by an old-line abolitionist, in the central part of the state by a Whig, and in the southern Illinois part by an anti-Nebraska Democrat. I cannot hold the Whig responsible for what the abolitionist says, nor the anti-Nebraska Democrat responsible for what either of the others say, and it looks like dogging a man all over the state. There was no further allusion to the subject, and Mr. Lincoln soon after called. The greeting between Judge Douglas and himself was the most cordial, and their conversation principally of incidents in their early lives of the most agreeable and friendly character. Stevenson referred to Jesse Weldon Fell as one of Lincoln's friends and the person who had a part in helping to arrange the Douglas-Lincoln debates later on. That was Stevenson's father-in-law. He was also Lincoln's floor manager at the 1860 convention and served as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. 
Adelaide E. Stevenson's memoir is a treasure trove bespotted with stories about interesting characters. Some of them are known, and some of them are long relegated to Illinois history, but there is one tenet in Stevenson's thinking through his political career, through his memoirs, and in his early days, the importance of a lawyer. Truly, it has been said, with the coming of the lawyer came a new power in the world. The steel-clad baron and his retainers were awed by terms they had never before heard and did not understand, such as precedent, principle, and the like. The great and real pacifier of the world was the lawyer. His parchment took the place of the battlefield. The flow of his ink checked the flow of blood. His quill usurped the place of the sword. Courts of justice and the laws, a distinctive calling, are the necessary outgrowths of civilization. In his rude state, man avenged his wrong with his strong arm, and the dogma, might makes right, passed unchallenged. But as communities assumed organic form, tribunals were instituted for the administration of justice and the maintenance of the public order. The progress of society, from a condition of semi-barbarism and an ignorance, to a state of the highest culture and refinement may be traced to its advancement in the modes of administering justice and in the character and learning of its tribunals. Stevenson would follow Lincoln and Douglas and make his way into politics in his home state of Illinois. He ran as a Democrat and was dramatically opposed to groups called the Know-Nothings who were against immigrants and who were bigots. Um, and nativists against Catholics. That stand helped Stevenson cement his support in the large German and Irish communities in Illinois. And in a predominantly Republican area, the Democratic Stevenson was winning friends. He was a great storyteller, and he had a warm and engaging personality. In 1860, at only 25, he's appointed Master in Chancery, kind of a court's aide. That's his first public office and he held it during the Civil War. In 1864, he was elected district attorney. At the end of his term, he entered law practice with his cousin, James Ewing. Stevenson and Ewing became one of the state's most prominent law firms. Here's what he said about courts in that day. Oratory counted much more then than it did now. When an important case was on trial, all other pursuits were for the time suspended, and the people for miles were in prompt attendance. This was especially the case when it was known that one or more of the leading advocates were to speak. The litigation, too, was to a large extent different than that of today. The country was new, population sparse, the luxuries and the many comforts of life yet in the future, post offices, schools, churches, many miles away. In every cabin, there were found to be the powder horn, the bullet pouch, and rifle. The restraints and amenities of modern society were in large measure unknown, and altogether much was to be, and was, hardened to the spirit of liberty. There were no great corporations to be chosen defendants, but much of the time of the courts was taken up by suits in ejectment, actions for assault and battery, breach of promise and slander. One, not infrequent, was replevelant 
involving the ownership of hogs, when by unquestioned usage all stock was permitted to run at large. But criminal trials of all grades and their detail aroused the deepest interest. To these people came from all directions, as if summoned to a great muster. In 1874, Adelai Stevenson runs for the House of Representatives as a Democrat. This was in a Republican area, in a Republican time. Uh, Grant was president. Local Republican newspapers painted him as a vile secessionist. He had not been, but his German connections from his days of fighting the know-nothings and the continuing hardships of the economy after the panic of 1873, a general national trend against Republicans and Grant, caused voters to sweep him into office. It was the first Democratic congressional majority that he joined since the Civil War. In the presidential election year of 1876, Republicans carry his district. Stevenson was narrowly defeated. Real close. Got 49% of the vote. And two years later, he would run again. This time, he'd pick up the backing of a new party, the Greenbacks, who advocated for an inflationary money system to make credit more available for farmers and, and workers and others. And in combo, the Democrats and Greenbacks carried his district. He was back in Congress. There he's noticed as a consensus builder. And when Grover Cleveland became president in 1885 and Democrats are returning to power for the first time since Buchanan, he's got reform liberal Republicans who helped to get him into office. They expect him to carry out the goals of civil service reform, not to return to Victor gets the spoils. But it's a conflict for Grover Cleveland. You know, at first, and, and personally, Grover Cleveland in the offices that he's appointing wants to do very little replacing of people that are already in office. But you've got these 55,000 fourth-class postmaster jobs, postmasters in small towns. And in a lot of cases, they, you know, may only make $1,000 a year, but very important to local political operations. They know who the people are in the town. They know what people are reading. It's a good way to reward loyal party people. Even Samuel Tilden, who is also a reformed Democrat, very influential with Cleveland, says you've got to do something about the fourth class postmasters. To leave them in Republican hands, he says, would be infidelity of the principles and causes of the administration. Well, Cleveland at first appoints General Malcolm Hay, who's a civil service reformer. But after three months in office, Postmaster Hay has to retire, and Cleveland now appoints Adelaide Stevenson. Stevenson makes his mark on the office. He does not hold back. Cleveland's opinions are Cleveland's opinions of the Postmaster. He removes Republican office holders. One Republican journalist describes Stevenson as the official axeman, the headsman of the post office who beheaded Republican office holders with the precision and dispatch of the French guillotine of the days of the revolution. He replaces 40,000 Republicans with deserving Democrats. He once removed 65 Republican postmasters in two minutes. Republicans protested, but they also recognized that they had done the same thing when they were in office. And Republicans had a big head start. 
in the civil service offices. So if you're going to have absolute reform, Democrats wouldn't have anybody in office. And, of course, when the Republicans won and Benjamin Harrison defeated Cleveland for the presidency in 1889, Benjamin Harrison appointed James Clarkson as his postmaster general. And Clarkson undoes most of what Stevenson did, replacing 32,000 of those fourth-class postmasters. And the battle continued. But something else happens. And that's that within the Democratic Party, Stevenson develops a reputation as somebody who's going to fight. And in 1892, there's little doubt who's going to be the nominee. Grover Cleveland, it was felt he had won in the popular vote, but not in the Electoral College. He could carry his home state of New York, and most elections just barely lost it in 1888. He's going to be the nominee again. But there's a lot of folks who want a more partisan edge to the ticket. And so Adelaide Stevenson is placed on the ticket for vice president. He has a pretty important role in that 1892 election in navigating the waters of a party that split between Southerners and Northerners, split between, well, not really split, actually sort of split between hard money, or that is that The United States should only be issuing as much money as it has gold reserves or silver money advocates that say you could also use silver, which would make money more plentiful, expansionary. Actually, most of the parties in the latter category with Stevenson and against Cleveland, but Cleveland is president. Stevenson does this careful balancing act that one needs to do because you have greenbackers, you have populists to contend with. It's not just Republicans versus Democrats in 1892. One of the interesting things about the Sherman Silver Purchase Act is that Senator John Sherman, this is the brother of the Civil War general, William Sherman, an Ohio Republican chairman of the Senate Finance Committee and had been Treasury Secretary uh, for Rutherford B. Hayes, had been a candidate for president in 1880, is that it's not Sherman's bill. But once the act had passed the House and passed the Senate, there was a lot of support in the 1880s and 1890s for the use of silver and coinage. Senator John Sherman, though, once it passed the House and Senate, was the one that got through the compromise bill and reached a final agreement of the act that was to pass. And so his name was put on it. He found that he disagreed with many sections of the act once it was passed. Um, When he was asked his opinion of the act by President Benjamin Harrison in 1890, Sherman said, the bill is safe and would cause no harm. It's enacted along um, after the big Republican victory in 1888, which is a victory of the White House and also congressional victory, and they launch a big tariff. This way, since tariffs are a big Democratic issue, and so is silver money, they don't want to hand the Democrats two issues in upcoming congressional elections. Let's have a compromise over the money question. Plus, there are silver Republicans in some of the western states, Nevada, 
for instance, uh, Colorado. And these senators are going to be crucial for the support of everything else the Republicans want to do. So under this act, the federal government purchased millions of ounces of silver using paper currency. The United States, right after the British, become the second buyer of silver in the world. So 4.5 million ounces of silver, silver bullion are purchased every month by the federal government. And they are bought with special coin notes that can be redeemed for either silver or gold. So what you're setting up is inflationary. In other words, it's an overvalued currency, but it is going to allow, in theory, more money to be out there to make credit more available to more people. It's not going to be all good, though. It's not so simple uh, as that. That's at least the theory, because investors are buying these silver certificates, exchanging it at the treasury as they have to by law for, for gold dollars, and then selling the gold dollars in the metals market for more than they had paid for the silver. They're taking profits of transactions and buying more silver and doing it over and over again. So these rich silver investors are coming out of this bill. Silver became, I don't know what the best way to describe it. You might say there's some relationship between it and and what you hear now in terms of, say, like a Green New Deal or Medicare for all, like the very kind of radical type of uh, political ideas. But silver was probably a more moderate way of of, of accomplishing that radical goals, like just by allowing some silver miners to produce more silver and sell it to the federal government um, and you know probably expanding credit a bit and making debts easier to pay um, you might be making some farmers and workers lives easier and irritating bankers certainly in the process but it's not as radical as some of the steps that others may have wanted like actual economic equality it's just a change in how you're uh, doing the monetary system. So in, in some ways, people like Brian or Stevenson or some of the teller in Colorado, the, one of the Republican silver senators that ended up supporting Brian, um, in many ways, they were sort of couching um, a moderate stance in very radical clothing. One journalist, Henry Demarest Lloyd, said that the free silver movement is a, movement is a fake. Free silver is the cowbird of the reform movement, waited till the nest had been built by the sacrifices of others, and then laid its own eggs in it, pushing out the others, which lie smashed on the ground. And because it was so tied with the political force of Bryanism, and in two big elections, 1896 and 1900, because one party mostly was aligned with the issue, you know, it was defeated in both those elections. But it was very alive in the time that Stevenson, it was probably the central issue of Stevenson's presidency. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? 
If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's how Edward Purcell's Vice President's A a Biographical Dictionary relates tells the story. He emerged in 1892 as the great conciliator. He fashioned a career of centrist positions, espousing the politics of consensus. Because Cleveland and Stevenson held divergent views on the volatile currency question, Stevenson wisely sidestepped the matter, preferring to concentrate on tariff reform. Even though, on Cleveland's insistence, he pledged his approval of the hard money plank in the Democratic platform. Yes, well, what occurred was there was about to be a big Republican Party um, expose in the newspapers that uh, of how strong a radical silverite, silverite that uh, Stevenson was. So at the last minute before he spoke, Cleveland's campaign managers handed him a speech, which completely uh, differed from his own opinions. To counteract the populist threat to Democratic success in the South, which was a solid part of the Democratic presidential coalition, Stevenson met with Cleveland in a post-convention strategy session, the former president's summer home in Buzzard Bay, Massachusetts. Now, this is unusual, right? A lot of times in the 19th century, you don't have presidents and vice presidents talking. Here you have this meeting where they're going to need to. There they carefully detailed a plan for a conservative counterattack. This compromise of 1892 consisted of five parts. Southern Democrats, who refrained from voting for the Populist Party, would be rewarded by victorious Democratic opposition to Republican efforts in Congress to enact a federal elections law. Yeah, this is not so good, but this is the, this is the base of that party in the 19th century. Second, the Democratic administration would continue to direct economic benefits to the South. Third, the Democrats would demonstrate their appreciation for Southern th- support through patronage. So, okay, economic benefits, tariff reform is going to help them. And then you have the direct patronage. We're just going to give you jobs. So it's three ways that the party is going to help the South. That's where its coalition of votes are coming from. To reinstate the South to a proper place in the union by harmonizing relations between sections. And fifth, Democrats would lower the tariffs and practice frugality in government. Stevenson visited several Midwestern border and deep Southern states, including Indiana, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, Maryland. In these appearances, he sought to generate support for the Democratic platform and convince discontented Democrats that too many votes for the populists would only concede the presidential election to Benjamin Harrison. Stevenson is not a story of a hero. 
I'll always point out with Democrats that sometimes their greatest work is, and what will look best today, is their work in shouting down bigots and anti-Catholic uh, people, anti-immigrant people, which Stevenson would have been one of those, but was completely willing to sell out African-Americans and the Reconstruction to help consolidate support of his party. Now, to be somewhat fair there, the Republicans weren't exactly proposing to do much different. Benjamin Harrison had tried, but his party blocked it in the Senate. So um, so you almost had no difference, unfortunately, between the two parties. Strategy works. Cleveland wins. They get the entire South. Cleveland and Stevenson. Cleve and Steve is the ticket was called. We get the entire South and uh, win New York State as well. Adlai Stevenson enjoyed his role of vice president, what he called the most august legislative assembly known to men. He won praise for ruling in a dignified nonpartisan manner. Yet like so many vice presidents, he just was not that close to Cleveland. And not only, you know, they might have coordinated on election strategy, but once that job was finished, he mostly stayed in the Senate. And in 1892, Cleveland interpreted his win as a vindication of his policies and a rejection of those of his opponents. The Sherman Act required the government to use some silver currency as well as gold currency, and Cleveland wanted to repeal it. He felt that would restore business confidence, and he calls Congress into session to consider the issue. But in October 1893, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act repeal met with a filibuster in the Senate. Senator Daniel Voorhees, who was the president's key supporter, a senator from Indiana, then announced, well, the Senate would remain in continuous session until a vote was taken. So you can filibuster all you want. We're not going home, boys. Opponents made repeated calls for quorums, feigned illness, refused to appear. Some had to be summoned by the Senate Sergeant of Arms. There was no procedure then to end filibusters. So a senator from New York, David Hill, circulated a petition to force the vice president to overrule all dilatory motions, but it didn't get any signers. And Democrats couldn't agree on the adoption of a cloture rule. People appealed to Stevenson as the officer, as the vice president. Can't you just stop all this foolishness? Stevenson did not. Indeed, he was sympathetic. Finally, the Senate accepted an arrangement by Maryland Democratic Senator Arthur Pugh Gorman that established not a repeal but a gradual reduction of silver purchases over a three-year period. This made possible the repeal bill that Cleveland wanted, but not in the way that he wanted it. He was angry. He was angry at Stevenson. He was angry at Gorman. And it doesn't appear it had any effect on the economy. Repeal of the Sherman Silver Purchase Act seemed to only contract the currency and weaken the economy more. Silver rights, including those in Cleveland's own party, called it the crime of 93. Having just attacked the Republicans for their disastrous tariffs and the effect of those on the economy, now the Democrats became the party of the empty dinner pail and suffered sweeping congressional defeats in 1894. Stevenson could take some heart in the fact that, although he was Cleveland's vice president, these weren't his policies, the crime of 93. But there was really more than that. Uh, Cleveland and Stevenson may have been political buddies, but had huge differences in issues. And some of Cleveland's supporters were afraid 
that Stevenson was next in line to the presidency. And right before Cleveland takes office, a financial panic on Wall Street plunges the nation into depression. Cleveland disapproved of any government program. In fact, although Cleveland supporters didn't know it, Cleveland had a nearly fatal operation on a boat in the harbor. Cleveland had his entire upper jaw removed and replaced with an artificial device. Cleveland's aides explained he merely had dental work. The operation left no outward scar. Nobody knew. It remained secret for another quarter century. His vice president, Stevenson, had no clue that he might have come close to becoming president that summer. And he was mentioned as a candidate to succeed Cleveland, who wasn't going to run again in 1896. But he gained little support. One Democrat noted, the party had switched. The young men of the country are determined to have something to say during the next election and are tired of these old hacks. Born in 35, now over 60, Stephen receives just a few votes, but the convention was taken by storm by another more committed civil right, 36-year-old former representative from Nebraska, William Jennings Bryan, who delivered his cross of gold speech. The Democrats had repudiated Cleveland by embracing free silver and nominating Bryan for president. Many of the Cleveland Democrats and newspapers who supported Cleveland refused to support Bryan. But Vice President Stevenson loyally endorsed the party's ticket. Stevenson would have one more go at office. Indeed, although Bryan would lose that election to McKinley in 96, he would be back in 1900. And so there was an attempt to find what Democrat would run on the ticket with Stevenson, with Bryan in 1900, who could perhaps be considered some part of the Cleveland democracy to bring the party back together. And so it was settled. Some of the accounts have it to a kind of random whim by a reporter who interviewed Indiana Senator Benjamin Shively. Shively had been talked about as a vice presidential candidate, but he didn't want it. And the reporter Dunn said, well, I still have to file a story on the vice presidential nomination. I think I'll write a piece about old Uncle Adelaide. That's a good idea, said Shively. Stevenson's just the man. And his story took off and won the convention over. Indeed, it had a good effect in 1900 in this way. The populace had already nominated a ticket of Bryan and then Charles Town, a silver Republican from Minnesota. The tacit understanding was Town will step aside if the Democrats nominate someone who supports silver money. Stevenson was good enough to make the populace feel comfortable, and Town withdrew and campaigned for Bryan and Stevenson. That ticket did not win, and Stevenson would not get back in the White House. All this talk about uh, Adlai Stevenson, one of these old-time politicians, even considered old at the time that he was vice president, um, is all interesting, of course. But it's not the reason that Adlai Stevenson or that name is even familiar with us. It's because not of his son, Louis Stevenson, who became an Illinois politician, but it's his grandson. Adlai Ewing Stevenson II, the Democratic candidate for President of the United States in 1952 and 1956, and the governor of Illinois. I want to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Vice President's Podcast. 
I do another podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. That one is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. That's my main cast. Um, so my website's there. If you like the Vice President's podcast, why don't you give us a review on iTunes or tell someone about the podcast? Thanks very much. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.